excited to start our days especially when I'm doing the podcast in the morning I'm always excited so we're continuing with our book leaders eat last and we have got wow probably about just over halfway in the book and we are on chapter 18 and this is uh, entitled so goes the leader so goes the culture but what I loved was the little subtitle underneath, which says, I before you, me before we. That might give you a little hint about what this uh, chapter is about. We all know that a good leader can make all the difference to the success of a business and our personal success. The day-to-day -day feelings we have about what we do will have a big influence on what we do with those feelings. Here at Les Diamants, we are extremely privileged, more than we know, to have a leader who inspires us, who makes us work hard but smart, and encourages our participation, and is excited about change and new ideas. Imagine going to work each day and wondering if it will be your last day. Maybe for a while you're motivated to show that person that you can do this, that you're the best, that you're gonna keep on going. But eventually you will feel beaten, you'll feel anxious, you'll feel afraid to do anything in case it's not good enough. Maybe some of you have experienced this, I have, not from a mean boss, but from a boss who did not value his people. He didn't know how to let them shine. In fact, he was worried that if he let them shine, it would diminish his own light. So he put them down, said they weren't ready for responsibility, believed that only he should have the ideas. That situation can destroy you. Stanley uh, O'Neill was worse than that. He was totally controlling. He was an African-American born in Wedowie, Alabama. He was very, very bright and driven, and he was granted a scholarship by General Motors to go to Harvard. You might think he would become an example of what is possible in America. Not so. He became one of the worst of the worst in terms of leaders. He joined Merrill Lynch, uh, another financial institution, and Merrill Lynch had a reputation for being Mother Merrill. It was a, com a company that had a great culture. They worked together, they encouraged others, but not O'Neill. He was not impressed with having to care about his employees. He was ruthless, having no problem to lay people off. He hated empathy. He had 
no, he had one goal only, and that was to be at the top. He did not want people to talk to him. He had his own private lift, which took him up to the top of the building. And he was what I would term a corporate dictator. His behavior actually was very like other dictators. One that comes to mind is Saddam Hussein. They come, um, Saddam Hussein came to the fore professing that he was for the people. He was not for the people, he was for himself. He wanted wealth, he wanted power. And this is a common thread with dictators. They want power, they want money. Leaders such as these do not create an environment of creativity and innovation. Their biggest, um, their biggest uh, problem, if you like, is that uh, people within their circle, within the organization, may be always in the process of, of planning a rebellion. But what they do is they try to keep control of everything so nobody has an opportunity to do anything. The people that work for them are driven by the intoxication of, of dopamine and of cortisol. They have a dread um, and a paranoia of what they're doing every day. Sounds like a great place to work, yes? No, not at all. Um, and uh, Merrill Lynch was very, very involved in the mortgage um, broker environment. And in 2006, there was a big change in the way the mortgage market was moving. And although O'Neill was advised by his top advisors that maybe they should take a different course of action, he said, no, I know what I'm doing, and sacked anyone who dared suggest that he might do something different. By October 2007, the company was failing. He was eventually forced out of the business. He had failed monumentally. He had driven Merrill Lynch into failure. But guess what? He got a severance of $160 million. How's that for failing? He is an extreme example of what was happening in Wall Street at the time. A company will only perform as well as the relationships in a company, starting with the leader. Leaders focused on wealth are tyrants, tyrants who shut off from the world. The people fight within because they want to try and get in the inner circle of the tyrant. They want to, um, they're, they're searching for a possibility. Remember the rustle in the grass that something might change. And so they are cortisol driven, cortisol for self-preservation. This is what O'Neill had uh, created. This is what Saddam Hussein had created. And the eventual outcome, thank goodness, is collapse. Let's flip the coin a bit and have a look at the other side of this possibility. Sometimes good leaders are made from bad situations. A captain and a submariner, David Marquet, was a career naval officer. He was really intelligent, he was high performing, he wanted to be the best at everything. 
each posting that he had, he made sure that he studied the submarine in details. And not only did he study the submarine in details, but he also studied the um, personnel on board the submarine because he said, I do not ever want to be in a situation where anybody else knows more than me. So you might be saying, yeah, but Melanie, I thought you were going to tell us about a different sort of person. This person sounds really similar. They want to be in control. The difference between Captain Marquet and Sam O'Neill is that Captain Marquet was intelligent enough to notice that maybe he didn't know everything. And that came slap in his face when he uh, had been assigned a, a posting to go to a submarine. Um, so of course he did his due diligence. He, he learned everything about the submarine. He learned everything about the people. But about a week before he was due to, to join that submarine, he was told that his posting had changed and now he would be having to go to somewhere different. In fact, it may even have been a couple of days before. Anyway, whatever the timing, he had no time to do his usual study. So he arrived on uh, a relatively new submarine, which was called the Santa Fe. The Santa Fe had a reputation and the reputation wasn't good. The reputation of the Santa Fe crew was that they came last in every sort of assessment the Navy did about how they performed in certain situations. So Captain Marquet says, it's okay, I'm good, I'll just give orders. They'll obey my orders and so then we'll be good. So that is how he started his, um, his assignment to the Santa Fe submarine. So as you know, naval submarines and all naval vessels have to do exercises. So one uh, particular month, uh, Marquet decided that he was going to put his submarine, which was a nuclear submarine, into a training situation, but he was gonna try and make it as real as possible. So, you know, he has a nuclear submarine. You better hope that the people know what they're doing. So he's going through various maneuvers and he's realizing that, um, that something was about to happen and that he had to change his direction. So he gave an instruction to the officer on the deck to change the direction by two thirds. So the uh, officer on the deck repeated this to the helmsman who was doing the job, uh, move direction by two thirds. Nothing happened. So Captain Marquet is like, well, we got to move guys. Like what is happening here? So he, he said to the helmsman, okay, helmsman, how come you didn't move uh, to my instruction? And the helmsman, looking very sheepish, looked at Marquet and said, there isn't a two-thirds button to move by two-thirds. So uh, Marquet looks at his officer on deck and says, well, how come you didn't, you know, did you know that there's no two-thirds button? 
And the officer on deck said, yes. So he said, well, why did you give the instruction? He said, because I was obeying orders. Okay, obeying orders that he knew would not be able to be fulfilled. This is a dangerous situation. And Marquet realized at that point that the crew knew way more than he did, that he was not really in control of this ship, and that he had to change the way he was trying to be a leader. So what he did, he said, I have a problem. I need to change the way I'm thinking. I need to work hard with the low-ranking people to give them enough responsibility or sense of responsibility that they can not do things just because somebody gives them an order. People at the top have a lot of authority and often not much information. People at the bottom have lots of information and no authority. So how can you work together to make sure that you get the best out of every situation? People have to be allowed to take responsibility for their actions. The leader has to take responsibility for the success of their people. If a leader is driven by the success of their people, guess what happens? He wants more success. He wants his people to feel that success. He wants to be able to give them satisfaction. And you know, there are only three things that a leader cannot delegate. The three things are any legal responsibility, he cannot delegate his knowledge, he has his knowledge, and he cannot delegate his relationships because they're his or her relationships. So everything else can be delegated. Leaders who lead by encouraging the participation of others will um, create an environment where failures are viewed as learning tools where new ideas are encouraged. It is an oxytocin, serotonin rich environment, occasionally driven by a dopamine boost when somebody wants to get a, a specific goal. We at Les Diamants are extremely lucky to have a leader that leads in this fashion. Our MLM is driven by a leader who celebrates the success of others, who wants others to have success. She doesn't know about the machinations of running a VIP group or doing the things that, that we do on a daily day-to-day -day basis, but she has plenty of people who can tell her, show her, explain to her how they work and as a result of that, she can lead us. She doesn't need to know the minutiae of what we do. What she needs to do is give us the responsibility to do it. And then she has the responsibility to have our backs 
if anything we do is not seen as legal. She has the legal responsibility. She will fight for us. So for me, Maria Mariano is one of the most outstanding leaders. And uh, we at Lady Irma are extremely lucky to have her. In physics, the definition of power is the transfer of energy. The more energy we give to our people, the more the organization and the leader will succeed. Ooh, I can't believe that. <laughs> I, I am quite emotional and um, I need to now pass it over to our technical advisor. <laughs> over to you, Mary Bia. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Yes, I will take over. <laughs> Thank you, Melanie. Okay, so let's go <laughs> a little bit more of this subject because what we understand is that leadership is not does not equal authority because maybe you have the authority, you have the boss title, but you don't. That doesn't mean that you are the leader because if you want to be a good leader, you need to have the information. So we want to. Say, okay, no, I don't have the authority, I don't have the title, but if I have the information, I can be a leader. So, yes, you can be an authority and not be a leader, and you can show leadership with no real authority because some people are born, born leaders and some people will just be promoted there with their job title. So, you can be a leader because people will trust you and follow you no matter your job title. If you are a leader with a position of authority, you can make a real difference or with the example that Melanie just told us, you can do more damage if you are in a position of authority. So just because you are an authority figure with higher rank doesn't mean that you are a true leader for your team. So leadership is a choice, not a rank. And people can be leaders with no real authority. And it, it takes a look, you know, all it takes is looking out for others in your tribe, whether it maybe it's just your baseball team or maybe it's a billion dollar business it's the same thing you have to care for your tribe so the criterion for the job of a leader is changing with all those changes that we see in the structure of most company so more and more people are assigned to leadership roles in which they have no positional authority so the goal of leadership without authority is to to get the others willingly cooperate and engage rather than following directives because you're the boss and in contrast to control-minded leader of the past today's most effective leader are exercising a different kind of power and this new style of leadership is a blending of personal and interpersonal skills that form the basis of a leader ability to impact influence and inspire others so there's three crucial skills for leading without authority so number one it's empathetic listening so <laughs> they did some research it's the ddi that did this, this research about leaders conversational skills that had the highest impact on overall performance so at the very top of the list it's empathy so specifically the ability to listen and respond empathically so they see a discovery in the report that 
Only 4 out of 10 leaders in their global study were proficient or strong in empathy. And the rate may be even lower in the newest generation of leaders because there's a study that found that the empathy level of the college students have been declining over the past 30 years, with an especially steep drop in the past 10 years. So as a leader, if you think you already rank high in empathy, you gain a genuine professional advantage. And if not, empathetic listening is a skill worth developing. Number two is the warm body language. There's two sets of body language cues that people look for in a leader. One set project warmth and caring, and the other signals power and status. Both are necessary for leaders today, and both will be critical to success of leader in the future. But in your role, the warmer side of nonverbal communication, which has been really undervalued and underutilized by leaders more concerned with projecting strength, status, and authority, will become central to creating the most productive workforce relationship. So the body language of inclusion and warmth include positive high contact, genuine smile, and open posture in which legs are uncrossed and arms are held away from your body with palm exposed or resting comfortably on the desk or a conference table. Or maybe mirroring is another nonverbal sign of warmth. You may not realize it, but when you are dealing with people you like or agree with, you will automatically begin to match their stance, arm position, and facial expression. It's a way of signaling that you are connected and engaged. And facing people directly when they're talking is also crucial. It shows that you are totally focused on them, even rotating your shoulder a crowded turn, uh, away signals a lack of interest and make the other person feel as their opinion are being discounted. So, of course, giving others your complete attention when they are speaking is one of the warmest, most inclusive signals you can send. And number three is positive emotion. So, they did a business simulation experiment at Yale University. They gave two groups of of people the assignment of deciding how much of a bonus to give each employee from a set of funds of money. Each person in the group was to get as large a bonus as possible for certain employee while being fair to the entire employee population. In one group, the conflicting agenda led to stress and tension, while in the second group, everyone ended up feeling good about the result. The difference was in the plan. So actor who had been secretly assigned to each group. In the first group, the actor was negative and downbeat, and in the second, positive and upbeat. The emotional tone of the meeting followed the, the lead of each actor. Although none of the group members understood why his or her feeling had shifted. So positive and negative emotion are highly infectious and instantaneously catching them is a universal human phenomenon. And in business, the power of emotion is often discounted. So we tend to believe that people will think logically and accurately. Steep in this belief, leaders quantify everything they can in order to present information in ways that will help team members make objective decisions. But we know <laughs> With all the, the things that we read in the past months, we know that 
mm, the center of our conscious thought. Our prefrontal cortex is so tightly connected to the emotional generating amygdala that no one makes decisions based on pure logic. So think of this way, we are all part of an emotional chain reaction effect. And as a leader without authority, if you can influence and inspire your team by understanding the emotion and drive performance. So worry, stress, and fear will decrease um, uh, the mental energy and impair mental agility and positive emotion, optimism, enthusiasm, and gratitude will increase their energy, learning, and motivation. So just remember that an authority has a title, but a leader has the people. So we do as authority says because they have the power over us, but we will not follow them. And leadership is a choice and it is the choice to look after the people to left um, to left of you and the person to the right of you. So when your people feel cared for, they will care for you. So I hope with those three points, you can really understand how you can uh, really um, use those skills to be in a, a good leader and to create your culture as a leader, even though maybe the authority hub is not in the same culture you as a leader can really make a difference for your team so i hope it will help you with those skills and i wish you a, a beautiful weekend and we will see you on monday goodbye everyone